Hello, friends, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot Four podcast. I'm outside the Hallamshire House, which is a Thornbridge pub, a mere stone's throw from where I live. And I've actually come today for two reasons. Firstly, because I recorded a podcast with Simon Webster, the co-founder of Thornbridge Brewery, on Monday. And secondly, um, they have a collab on with Budweiser Budvar, which is the first collab that Budweiser Budvar have done outside of the Czech Republic with any brewery. So I've come to try that, but I've got this problem. Whenever I come to the Hampshire House, I always ask for a pint of Jaipur, regardless of how much I tell myself, don't ask for Jaipur, don't ask for Jaipur. It just spills out my mouth. So I, I need to muster up all the energy I can, all the willpower and resist today. So wish me luck, I'm going in. Hello, mate. You all right? How are you doing? Ah, not bad. Have a pint of Jaipur, please. Of course you can. <laughs> nice one. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Bugger. I did it again. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast. Getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. With interviews, discussions, stories and advice from a range of brewers and craft beer professionals, the Hot Forward podcast is here to help you and your beer business hot rocket your way to success. Visit our website at hotforward.beer to find out more. Grab yourself a beer as we crack open another fresh episode of the Hot Forward podcast. Every time, every time, just can't help myself. Thornbridge Jaipur isn't just a superbly well-balanced beer with masses of grapefruit flavour, hot bitterness and a delicate malt base. It's one of the reasons I got into brewing beer in the first place. When I was younger, I'd read the ingredients on the back of beer bottles and wonder, like, how do they make all these different beer styles using a few ingredients? You know, malted barley, hops, water, yeast, they've all got different flavours and colours and aromas. How on earth do they do that? Naturally, there were differences between the cask, pale ales that I drink, you know, the, the floral hop-driven beers I'd become accustomed to, such as Kellam Island's Easy Rider or Abbeydale Moonshine. And then, obviously, you'd have some amber beers like Black Sheep. That was always a go-to cask ale for me. And that always had deep, interesting flavours. And, and obviously, then, on the dark end, you've got stouts, which just had this complexity that far outstripped them all. But then I encountered Jaipur for the first time, and that was a revelation. Firstly, the alcohol by volume at 5.9% just seemed utterly immense. In fact, I remember when Thornbridge released Giant Power X in 2015 to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the brewery, being extremely cautious about drinking an entire 500-milliliter bottle. But back in the mid to late noughties, whenever it was our first encounter Jaipur, not only was the AUV huge, but the hot flavour and aroma were just simply off the chart. I'd never sampled anything that had such intense bitterness while simultaneously being so daringly drinkable. As you can imagine, I was hooked from the word go. Slowly but surely, Thornbridge introduced me to beer styles and flavours I never imagined could be captured within a pint glass. For example, Kipling, a South Pacific pale ale, utilising the white wine and gooseberry tang of Nelson Savant hops. 
was a firm favourite of mine until I happened upon St. Petersburg Russian Imperial Stout. This slightly smoky, licorice delight with a deep tan head not only became a favourite Thornbridge beer of mine, but a favourite beer of mine full stop. Over the years, I've had the pleasure of drinking Thornbridge beers that have tasted like everything from liquid smoked sausage, Bamberg, a heavenly Rausch beer, to Charlie Brown, a peanut brown ale with its caramel toffee and jam sticky notes. Many of these beers have been enjoyed in the pub that I'm sitting in today on this delightful Friday afternoon, the Hallamshire House. The Hallamshire House is located in the student suburb of Crooksmoor in Sheffield. It's a charming establishment with masses of character from the decades that this building has been a public house. It boasts a beautifully adorned bar with wooden panels, cosy corners like the one I'm sat in at the moment, and a rare snooker lounge in the sea. However, what truly distinguishes the Hallamshire House is its hidden gem, the secret garden. This intimate retreat is tucked away behind the establishment, featuring ivy-clad walls and a diverse range of wildlife, including roses, sunflowers, sweet peas, and trailing lobelia. It's really something special and amazing to sit on a cool, crisp summer's evening. As you can imagine, with a beer garden like that and leather armchairs, it is one of my favourite pubs. For me, Thornbridge not only represent consistently brewed beer to the highest quality, but a brand and business that is solid, enduring and bears all the hallmarks of quality. I genuinely don't think there's anyone out there doing it better in the UK, if not the world, in my opinion. As you can imagine, over these last four and a half years of running the Hot Four podcast, eight years of being a brewer and over 20 years of enjoying beer, I was quite keen to visit Thornbridge and get them on the podcast to share the secrets of their success. And fortunately, my ship came in. Just a huge thanks to Paul Evans from Ninkazi Rentals and Finance. Uh, I was dropped an introduction to co-founder Simon Webster at this year's Seba Beer X in Liverpool, who invited me over to the Riverside Brewery to chat about everything from Jaipur, their recent collaboration with Budweiser Budfart, which I, <laughs> which I shall try after finishing off this pint of Jaipur, their involvement in acquiring Keller Island Brewery and the recent rebrand that's just gone under, and just about every other question that has been pent up over the years that I had an opportunity to ask. So a huge thanks to Paul and the guys from Nikazi Rentals and Finance for landing me that introduction, and a massive thank you to Simon Webster from Thornbridge Brewery for not only giving me his time and showing me around the brewery, which was amazing, as you can imagine but also for the hospitality they extended and lavishing me with some amazing beers to take away. So before we crack open this fantastic episode with Simon Webster from Thornbridge Brewery, I'm going to finish up this pint and go and order the uh, checkmates that I came in here to actually try. And we're going to speak to James Lewis from Ninkazi Rentals and Finance, the proud sponsors of this week's episode. Stay tuned as we'll be back in one moment to discuss tank rental and how renting fermenters, unitanks and other vessels might just be the better option for you and your brewery rather than purchasing something outright. I'm joined by James Lewis and Paul Evans from Ninkazi Rentals and Finance. Hello. Morning. How are you guys? 
<laughs> wet today. <laughs> I know after all the sun. I thought it'd be cooler as well. I was looking forward to some rain and it's absolutely roasting. We're in the warehouse, well, I'm in the warehouse today, and it's, uh, it's quite a nice change to not be baking inside a steel shed. I always feel sorry for brewers, you know, digging out mash tons. It's just, and, and then and kettles as well. It's just horrible when it's hot. Oh, no, no, no. I was in Loch Lomond on Friday uh, doing some work with the guys up there and it was 32 degrees in there at 8 o'clock at night and it was just unbelievable. Oh, dear. You know, and that's Scotland. They're not exactly renowned for uh, a tropical climate, are they? <laughs> so now we've done that great British thing of moaning about the weather. We're going to look today at tank rentals. Before we crack on, tell us briefly about Ninkazi Rentals and Finance. So Ninkasi Rentals are predominantly a fermentation rental company. We have around 300 tanks in our fleet in the UK. We're moving into Europe. We will support craft brewers with anything that they're looking for. We've now got a very strong relationship with Anton Parr. We work very closely with Microcan. We've got hot rockets in the fleet, pilot kits in the fleet. In effect, we'd like to think ourselves as being able to provide a service to craft brewers and offer them a solution to their cash flow requirements. Amazing. So one of those solutions is renting fermentation vessels. Why should a brewer rent a fermentation tank and what are the benefits? Realistically, the main reason to rent a fermentation tank over any other is cash flow. It's significantly better for a business's cash flow to rent any equipment rather than outright purchase. The next big benefit that we see is flexibility. So as breweries are are growing, if you, for example, rent a 30-hectolitre tank, if within a couple of years the beer that you've got in there suddenly becomes your bestseller, instead of renting another 30-hectolitre tank, you can upscale that 30-hectolitre tank to a 60-hectolitre tank. In effect, you've doubled your capacity without doubling your capital spend. Mm. So brewers and lots of breweries do this with us. So breweries can afford to effectively grow with us while increasing capacity, but not actually increasing their overhead costs. So it makes it a much more cost-effective manner of growing their business. And then what they can do is they can use the capital that they're saving and they can reinvest that capital into areas that they can't get rental or finance products. So tap rooms, marketing, sales, direct consumer relatable spend that actually drives the revenue of the business rather than asset rentals, which never actually drives any revenue, just adds a cost base to it. When brewers are looking at upscaling production capacity then, what considerations should they make before they actually take that step? One of the key parts that we find in the early conversations, Nick, is that customers generally know what the limits are physically inside the business for headroom and capacity requirements for their brew length. And what we'll do is we'll either visit or send them a survey link to make sure that we're not running um, or we've walked and we've identified that we can actually fit our products into their production system. And I think the key about this is we work on a very consultative basis. It's interesting that you mentioned about headroom, actually. How much headroom should a brewer typically look for in a fermenter? We've got a range of vessels with both dish bottom and conical. 
Our 10 hec conicals are 2.7 meters high, and the 60 hec are 4.9 meters high. So when you're looking at placing a vessel into the production area, dependent on the type of process you use, i.e., do you need to open the top manway? So the guys, our guys are very, very good at threading a needle in a haystack. They can make sure that when they're installing the tank, that the top manway is able to open, uh, that there's also enough clearance as we're moving the vessel into the brewery that we're not going to uh, make contact with any of the overheads. The survey that we, we ask you to complete, or we do when we come along and visit, is very important to making sure that when the guys arrive on the day to do the install, that they're not walking in blind. So you install quite a lot of tanks, and I know this can be a challenge for some breweries, especially if they're short on space or have a lot of logistical challenges of getting plant and equipment in and out of the building. An example would be when I worked at Sheffield Brewery Company. It was an old Victorian works, so it wasn't on the ground floor, but it wasn't on the first floor because, you know, when you had to bring your horse and cart up to be loaded, it was kind of above ground floor level. So you had this challenge of getting stuff onto the main level where the brew kettle was, and then all the fermentation capacity was in the cellar, which was very aesthetically beautiful with red brick floors. But there was this ramp which went down with Yorkshire stone and then these cobbles in the middle set. Any time you needed to get anything in and out, uh, like bottles on pallets, you had to take a pallet truck down this awful ramp. It was just the most horrendous thing. So I, I would imagine you guys have met with some real logistical challenges. How would you overcome issues like that? I think that goes back to um, skills that I've learned from life. And uh, if I'm not going to be the person that is there on the day... What I want the team around me to, to do is to walk in and know about everything that's going on. You know, many years ago when uh, we were involved in a rental business, I got a phone call from the supplier and the supplier said, did you check to see whether we could get a trunker down the lane and deliver those containers to, to the customer? And I said, no. He said, well, we struggled. We actually had to get them to forklift the pallets 300 metres down a track. And that that really always stuck in my mind. And you know, I hold my colleagues in high esteem in that if I give them all the information to allow them to complete the delivery in a timely manner where they're not leaving at, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon for a three-hour drive back. So what we do is and it's imperative in the very beginning to understand what the layout is of the customer's business. And I will say to people, can you just do us a video from outside where our guys are going to rock up? And then walk us through to the final landing spot. And that instant shot, that almost bird's eye view, gives us an understanding of what questions we need to ask. So that ramp at Sheffield, the floor, we see it in brew floors, where there are cobbles, where there are small buns. There's always a way to get around it, whether you go over it, whether you go around it, but it's knowing the information inside. And it's only experience, Nick, that will allow us to, to ask the right questions. There are times when we'll come across an issue, but it's how you approach it as opposed to being fearful of it. I guess that's the difference with working with a company like Ninkazi Rentals and Finance, where you've got all that experience, you've seen all those different scenarios, and you can instantly think, oh, there's a solution there, or yeah, we've encountered that before, versus buying a tank from China or somewhere it rocking up on the flatbed truck 
And then it being like, right, we've got to put this in. How are we going to do it? And you see it, it's tank installation day. And then they're like sort of like jimmying it and sort of trying to tip it and all manner of crazy ways of getting this tank in. And it takes them like literally all day. That's a, a day of production, lost a day of sales, whatever. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right, Nick. And I've, I've seen it before and I've, I've had those conversations with brewery owners. As a business owner, I think I would be more worried about the risk of not even of the tank falling over. I mean, if the tank falls over, it's it's a capital issue and 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 it, it, it's money. It's what happens if something happens because a lot of times when I've seen these things done, it's with a forklift truck that somebody's borrowed, and then it's with four or five guys and and people are pulling up hoists and trying to get things over beams and all the rest of it. If somebody was to ever get injured, God forbid, in that scenario. As an owner of a business, you've got a really big liability there and something that your insurance won't pick up because where's your health and safety? You know, is the forklift got Lola? You know, what checks have been done? Where's your risk assessments? Where's your method statements? And then, God, if HSE get involved as well, then you've got even more problems. Mm. As a small business owner myself, I get it. Saving money and doing things yourself, I, get, I understand the logic behind it. I, I really do. Profitability at the end of the day but it's got to be sustainable. In Cassie, our professionals, this is what we do. We have specialist equipment. We have hydraulic tippers. We can put things into places that, that nobody else can, Not certainly not at the speed that we do it, certainly not at the cost that we do it. Um, I mean, I've seen walls taken out of breweries um, to get tanks in, um, whereas we can just take our tipper and as long as it's underneath the dimensions, we can move our tippers in, hydraulic lift them into vertical, and we're in and out within a couple of hours. It is a USP that we have in terms of how we do things, but Paul's absolutely right. We're not going to guess whether we can do things. We're going to look at surveys. We're going to ask you for measurements. We're going to understand what equipment you've actually got on site. We're going to look at the dimensions. We're going to get videos. We're going to do things the way that you would expect a professional company to do it because that's how we want to do it because that keeps us and our team safe. It keeps you and your team safe. It keeps the cost down and actually it's the quickest way to do it. So to your point, our customers can get on with brewing. It means they can carry on. It means they can get their tanks into place. We give them a delivery date. We'll have the tank in on that day. By that time, they know that by the time that we leave, they can fill that tank. Yeah. We can allow them to continually see move their business forward, but it has to be done safely. Yeah, definitely. One of the um, recent installations we've done is with a business um, owned by a fellow called Elliot uh, Loon Brew. And Elliot has got a very old building. He actually got the builders to work with us. Took walls out, took floors out. Uh, one of the engineers uh, went up, visited the site, and was very clear, very transparent about how this uh, the, these vessels were going to go into the building. And then they were going to close everything up afterwards. And that will bring us on to another conversation we're going to have a little while about uh, what are the options available at the end of a higher period. So how should a brewery approach crunching the numbers to assess whether it would be better to purchase the tank outright or use financing or just lease one for a set period? I think every brewer, every brewery owner has done due diligence projects before looking at capital expenditure, depreciation, asset risk, finance, et cetera, et cetera. When I look at it, I'm looking at 
what's my immediate outlay going to be? What's my return going to be? What is the opportunity that I'm losing or gaining? So the numbers are the numbers. Go to Nincassi, get a rental quote. You can go to a manufacturer, get a purchase quote. You can go to a finance company, get finance options on those. And then what fits in the back of that is lead time. So lead times on rental is going to be weeks. The lead time on purchase or finance is going to be months. And then obviously you've got the cash flow risk on purchase because obviously if anything happens, you're liable for it. And it's the same with finance because ultimately most finance companies won't finance anything unless it's already in the UK. Otherwise, it's there. I would also look at the opportunity risk that you've got. So if you've got an opportunity for sales now to grow that revenue, if you go and purchase something, then it's possibly four to five months before you're even going to get it in. Well, most of us know that the season is probably four to five months long. So have you lost that opportunity? And is that opportunity still going to be there in four to five months' time because the market is so turbulent at the moment? So for me, I'd be looking at a, a, a rental option because it takes out a lot of those risks. And there's always an opportunity for financing it or doing other things with the rental tank at the back end of that opportunity. Paul, anything that you've got to add to that? With that, I would I would add that one of the key parts that, that I find customers come to us and they're, they're looking at adding equipment into their business is that they don't always understand what the suppliers or the manufacturer's payment terms conditions are. So if you're taking a, a single tank at 15K and you may be buying a couple, you may be buying a handful, you've got to pay for that outright before it leaves the manufacturer. Back in 2010, started forging relationships with a lot of equipment manufacturers, suppliers in the UK. And off the back of that, we identified terms that we would both agree on because at the time, the finance company and the business that I was working with, they would undertake to pay the supplier. So the risk is removed from the supplier in that the customer won't pay. Today, those relationships have continued on. The, the key that we can do, for example, with microcamp, we'll pay their invoice without any concerns at all because we know that they're good for the equipment. And it's about easing the cash flow requirements of the customer to always add value. Amazing. Well, it's been fantastic to get you on the show again this week. Finally, can you give us some examples of breweries you've rented tanks and equipment out to? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, we've got, as I said, I've got over 300 tanks in the UK at the moment. We've worked very closely with people like Burden, Daya, our mutual friends at Thornbridge, yeah. who we know really well. Uh, we've got uh, tanks in, in Scotland. We've got Lomond. We've got 71. Pretty much all over the country. Loads down in, in London. You mentioned Salt earlier. We've got stuff in Osset. We range anywhere from the smallest nano breweries all the way up to some of the larger breweries in the country. Anywhere that we can help and we can support, we will do. Paul? I think it comes down to relationships and customers. We get a tremendous amount of referrals. Uh, and, and, and that for us is, is fantastic because it means we're doing things right. 
Well, thanks for being on the show this week. I always find it really fascinating to talk to you guys. And I know you add a lot of value to the industry. So just a huge thank you once again for your support of Hot Forward. How should people get in touch with you should they want to finance or rent equipment from you? Simplest way is to either use one of the socials or drop uh, all an email, info at nincassirentals.co.uk. Or you go back the old school way, pick up the phone, uh, give me a ring. Pick up the phone. Do people still do that? <laughs> <laughs> Not very yeah, often. Yeah. <laughs> the new generation today, Nick, where um, people much prefer to uh, to drop you a DM or a text. <laughs> there you go. Make sure you connect with the team from Nikazi Rentals and Finance for all your equipment needs and to help your brewery grow in a sustainable way. Finally, if you're looking for branding, website and e-commerce development, marketing support or commercial advice, then take a listen to this short message on how Hot Forward can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. And after that, we'll dive into our conversation with Simon Webster, co-founder of Thornbridge Brewery. If you like the Hot Forward podcast, then follow us on all the socials at Hot Forward Beers. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify and all of the good podcasting platforms. And visit our website, hotforward.beer, to connect with us and find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business with branding, creative media, and business consultancy for breweries, bars, bottle shops, and supply chain businesses. For now, Grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today, I'm at the Riverside Brewery in Bakewell, home of one of the UK's most treasured breweries. I am, of course, talking about Thornbridge Brewery, and I'm joined by co-founder Simon Webster. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How good, are good. you? Good, Yeah, welcome. Yeah, it's a lo- lovely sunny day. Yeah. We, we, we've been starved of them in the uh, uh, recently, but the last few days have been nice. So. I know it's, it's, it's winter has just seemed to like prolong <laughs> into everything, May. didn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so um, I, I should imagine some very nice uh, scenic walks in this kind of weather down yeah, by the river. Yeah, I mean, we, do, I mean, we've been incredibly busy since we opened the tap room, um, and again, you know, Bakewell has a, a, a huge amount of tourism uh, at this time of year onwards. So the more people coming out camping, the better. Yeah. Uh, for us and uh, it's where you know hopefully the next few weeks we'll see people coming out and with the half term and stuff like that yeah. so all good I, did, I discovered uh, the tourism and the <laughs> traffic on the way in yeah market day is often like that uh, oh is it market day it's today market I cho- day. obviously chose the best day yeah. for it then I'm thinking because last time I came to actually come here to the tap room it was so busy and I thought well it's, it's a Monday you know like I'll be able to just sail through the middle <laughs> yeah. of Bakewell and then there was like huge traffic jam so yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself and the setup here at Thornbridge Brewery yeah, well, as, as is fairly common knowledge, we, we started out in sort of 2005, uh, brewing up at the hall with uh, with a couple of young brewers, and uh, and it was a very different uh, beerscape back then. You know, what we were doing and what others were doing is very different to what's happening now, and the, the route to markets were completely different. Um, and we, we sort of, um, we just had some fun really, brewing what we wanted to brew rather than what anybody told us we should be doing or or anything like that so it was good so we started that back then came down to to the Bakewell site 2009 still ran the two sites up until 
2020 when we brought the uh, the old hall site down to where we are now in the tap room. Right. It covers quite a large footprint. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a big old space. We've got about sort of 250 um, seats in here for the tap room. We have a kitchen that just does pizzas, but we do run about 1,100 pizzas a week. And then we've got sort of uh, a load of taps on the wall. And then behind that is where brewing beer. Uh, five times a day. Yeah. So um, it's uh, it's a busy old place. Yeah. So you got your cast production over there. Yeah, the small batch, um, the smaller batch stuff. So we don't do stuff. So so when you talk about the cast source stuff, the biggest selling cast beer we do is Jaipur still, yeah. obviously. So Jaipur, Brother Rabbit, Lord Marples, things like Crackendale and Kipling are done in Riverside. Right. And then this is the more small batch, thirty-six casks at a time. Right, I see. Uh, stuff that we do uh, that we do on the back here, yeah. So, what, what kind of hectoliterage is it in the main Riverside brewery? We did fifty thousand hectoliters last right. year. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's a lot of beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, and 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 that's and generally that's where our packaging lines are as well. So we can and bottle in there. Right. Uh, so um, uh, we've been doing that, uh, and then over here is just cask beer, and then we do a, a house a house keg beer as well. Amazing. So I'd, I'd love to start right at the beginning. I know you've alluded to a little bit of the early Thornbridge days from what you just said, but like take us back to 2004 when you were yep. setting up the brewery, those early days, like how, how the beers were received, what it was like working with brewers like Stefano and, yeah. and Martin Dickey, and how the brewery started to grow and develop back then. It was a fantastic time, to be honest. So by 2004, we were... Dave Wickett, uh, who's no longer with us, who who was at Callum Island, he'd helped us set the brewery up at that sort of time. Uh, And we were doing some of... It was around about the time Callum won Champion Beer of Britain for Pale Rider. Right. So the formative um, uh, years, uh, we were were helping Callum Island do some of their other beers. So the the Callum Island brewer at the time would come up here and help us uh, do some stuff. And then so we did that. And then around about 2005... Um, we employed Stefano Cossi and Martin Dickey, um, along with another chap called Dave Corby. So we had three three brewers. Dave was the, the really experienced sort of guy, worked at Bass right. places. And then we got Martin and uh, Steph, who just wanted to, to try and experiment and, and, and brew some beers. So by, by March that year, 2005, we were brewing Lord Marples and a pale ale called Blackthorn. And then on the 7th of June, 2005... We brewed Jaipur for the first time. Right. So uh, two weeks later, we were pouring that at the garden party. Um, and sort of quite a lot of things changed yeah. after that. Well, I mean, Thornbridge is known for a lot of things like, you know, collaborations with some world-renowned brewers, the quality and innovation and, and an exceptional barrel aging program. Yeah. But when people hear the word Jaipur, yeah. it's mostly synonymous with Thornbridge. So, like, how has Jaipur as a core beer help shape the brewery into what it is today and what sort of volumes does it account for in your output how has that beer changed over the years yeah. if, if it's changed what it should never have happened really Jaipur you know we're back in 2005 we're brewing a 5.9% American IPA on cask <laughs> that, I mean now if, if that beer came out now to be in keg anyway yeah. but there was no route to market uh, with keg beers back then so so cask you had a, a, a route to market into the local scene or, or where, where pubs are more free of time cask so when we brewed that beer, we, you know, I always say that it had a nod to Goose Island IPA. You know, they were the beers we yeah, were sort yeah. of drinking back then. Uh, and the idea of using um, American hops in there uh, and, 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 and just playing around. But nobody spoke about ABV on beers back in 2005. It was just sort of beer. So generally, most of the cask beers in a pub would range between 3.5 and 4.5, probably. 
And then this thing came along at 5.9, which was balanced beautifully. So you weren't tasting, you know, the, the Belgian beers at 6% plus, you, you could, they were boozy, but this mm. wasn't. Um, it was beautifully balanced, and people were drinking it as if they were drinking a 4% beer. And we had many tales of people being jaipoli, jaipoured, and, <laughs> you know, you, you drink four or five pints of it, stand up and fall down. Yeah, it still happens today to <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> I always think when I go to the Hampshire house, um, my, my brain's always like, don't ask for Jaipur first. Don't yeah. ask for Jaipur first. And then the bartender comes up and says, oh, what do you want, mate? And I'm like, pint of Jaipur. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, just like, it's just like Jaipur to yeah. and, it, and, and again, you know, it's not even the strongest beer on the bar anymore, is it? No, you know, no. You know, 5.9, there's, there's, there's plenty of beers above that. But it still continues to be such a successful beer for us. And again, there's a... You know, when when we released the beer, it, it just pe- people loved it. It, yeah. it was an, Amer- an incredible thing. Pete Brown, uh, uh, one of the uh, main beer writers in the country, always said, you know, he was drinking in black and white, and then Jaipur came along and everything was in colour. And yeah, it was yeah. it was a really emotive beer, and it was it was a great beer to put in front of people because it was so so punchy and so so aromatic and so sort of everything that you wanted within a beer and it challenged the drinker because people weren't drinking beers like that it continues to be the only beer we do in cask keg bottle can and now in bottle conditioned as well um and probably accounts for about 40 to 45 percent of of what we do right wow okay uh, that's a lot which is which is a lot of beer yeah absolutely so I've heard the the cask version uses a different yeast strain. Yeah. To, is that right? It so, is, yeah, yeah. Um, what qualities do the different strains bring each iteration, and, and why that decision to use different yeasts? I, th- I think what it was because we always used a, a cask beer yeast for, uh, for, for for cask. Obviously, we um, when we when when would this be? Two thousand and ten was probably the time we first put it into keg. So sometimes. Um, Yeast is such an important part of beer, as you well yeah, know, yeah. And, and has its own characteristics. And what we wanted with the keg, we didn't think that the cask beer strain would suit it, so we wanted something a little bit more neutral. And that's why we use a California ale yeast, uh, which really is just lets the, the, the hops do what they do sort of thing. So with, with keg um, and bottle and can, we use that, and then we've always carried on with the... Uh, with a, a cask ale yeast strain right. on the on the uh, cask. Are they the only differences, or do you treat yeah. the hopping range no, yeast different? No, all, all, all the hops are the same. Everything's the sort of same. It's just purely these is, is the yeast sort of stuff. Right. And and has, has the recipe changed over the years, or no. just stayed constant? We've always used. I mean, again, you know, people say oh, it's not as not as hoppy as it was. What well, is as hoppy as it was? Yep. We use, we we've never we've never dumbed it down because we've never needed to. There's always been a huge market for it, but of course. People's tolerance to hops in 2005 are very different to what they are Absolutely. in 2023. So I, I worked for many years at Henderson's Relish. And, oh, really? And, and right. every, it's usually anything with an orange label in a bottle is, is something to do with me. But um, <laughs> people always said, oh, you know, we, uh, it, it always used to be far more spicy, you know, when I was, was young. And it's like, it was probably the first time we were tasting chilies and yeah, that sort yeah. of thing, you know, that, you, you know, whereas now our tolerance is high. But Jaipur remains a fantastic beer in all those formats and just has that balance, I think, which makes you want to drink it far more than probably you should. Is it true with Hendo's where it says on the bottle that the secret ingredients are only known by three family members? Is that true or is that just marketing? It, I mean, it is. I'm still a, I'm still a shareholder. Right. Uh, and and within, there's one little process within it that uh, is only shared amongst three family members, yeah. Right, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So... 
I'd love to ask what goes into Hendo's as much as I'd love to get. So what hops do you use in Jaipur? And yeah. what quantities? And where do you use them? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, there's been quite a few Jaipur clones over the years as well from other breweries that have, 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 have saw it come onto the scene and, have, and loved it. So generally, as, as you'll know as a, as a brewer, if you like a beer... You'll, you'll try and make it like that, yep. won't you? You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we, you know, there's a lot of beers that we do, which are which, which are a massive nod to the head for others. Chiron is is Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Yep. You know, we wanted to try and, you know, do that beer and taste it when it's only a week old. You know, and it's that sort of thing. And there's many beers like that. You know, we we brew a lot of beers in style. Yeah. So Lucas is not much different to a hell as you find in Germany. You know, the verse of the wheat beer is, is bang on style, a 5% wheat beer. So there's certain beers that we do um, in style and then there's certain beers that we'll just, you know, make up. Yes, I've heard that Punk IPA, the early iterations, <laughs> were not too dissimilar to Jaipur. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's forced to happen, isn't it? I've, I've joked with Martin over the years on that sort of thing. But again, he went away and, and, and brewed a 6% IPA using American hops. And, and, you know, but in the same respect, you know, I've had brewers come from other breweries. You know, Rob Lovett, our head brewer, was at Meantime in Camden. And, yep. you know, thanks to him, we're, we're producing some fantastic lagers. Yeah from his experience of working at Meantime in Canada. Yes. That's what happens, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously Thornbridge isn't just a Jaipur-making machine as you've got a a wide variety of uh, beers under your belt, both both cores, seasonals and one-offs, yet the quality remains consistent in all your output. What kind of QA processes do you put in place to ensure that every beer is on point? Again, you'd be better speaking to a brewer than that rather than me. But, you know, I'll I'll, I'll quickly show you around afterwards and you'll see the back of house, which is so important to us. And again, because we supply 35 countries around the world, it's important for us to make sure we're not getting beer coming back, any faults in or anything like that. So the science has always been a huge part of what we do. So, you know, we're a very front-end artistic business, but behind it all is, is, is a science that, that we need and, and quality and consistency often aren't the most sexiest of words, but they are, as a brewer, really important. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've never had, and I'm not just saying this because I'm so opposite you, but I've, I've never had a Thornbridge beer that's been off, Good. like, ever, yeah. you know. And it's, I mean, it's one of the reasons I always go back to the Hounshire House because yeah. I, I know the beer's always going to be on point and I know whatever I order, whether I've had a, a sample or not, I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. I think technically we're very, very strong. Um, and I think that's key. We'll always make beers that some people don't like. Yep. And that, that's, that's like, you know, a restaurant making a, a dish that somebody doesn't like. But, it, but, it's, but it's on point. It's technically well-crafted mm. uh, beer. And, uh, yeah, we, it's, it's, it's a major part of what we do. Yeah. It's underrated, as you well know. But, you know, we, as a consumer shouldn't have to gamble when, they, when they're, especially at the moment when you're paying big money for, for, for pints of beer. You need to know that it's good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh, how, how do you approach introducing all these different beers and, and how do you know, or how can you tell which ones, let's say you do like a special. Yeah. Do, you, do any of those kind of become mainstay beers that you, you bring into your portfolio? And like, just take us through that process of making those specials and, and if they become main beers, like what process that goes through? Yeah, it's interesting really because the majority of them stay as specials, stay as seasonals, whatever. But we do have... I mean, I think last year, I think we brewed 90 different beers, which is probably 72 many. You're right. <laughs> but it's, it's what we do and what we've always sort of done. And actually, it's, it's about most of the beers come and go, as, as, as with most breweries. And we, and we keep a core, but our core's quite big. 
Um, so even even beers, so probably the most recent beers that have come and stayed were probably things like Green Mountain. Yep. Uh, which is now probably the third third best selling beer we do. Um, so 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 beers that sort of fit into a gap seem to go very well. We just uh, done a done a bitter recently, a three point four percent bitter called Padley, which, which seems to have got quite a lot of people liking it. Mm. So again, that might be something that we now, rather than it be out, you know, just available for three months, could be something that we sort of bring through and, and keep in the portfolio a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, but the hardest thing is making sure we've always got the core range available. So we got. So again, you, you know what our pubs are like. They're not craft beer bars. They're, mm. they're, they're, they're local pubs. So we do have people who go to the Hamish House and just drink less is best, Lord Marples because that's what they want. They don't want to experiment. They don't want a beer that tastes of grapefruit. They don't want to serve <laughs> it. So we do, we, we do try and keep the core beers always available. And that's the same even in, in our bars in Birmingham, Leeds and York as well. We do have a certain uh, regular drinker who, uh, who wants that. So, so bringing something else in and keeping it is difficult. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we, we're very, very close to full capacity. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot to be said for those mainstay beers, and it's very tempting um, as, as a brewer... To, to follow the trends yeah. and, and to uh, particularly if you get on that cycle I remember um, back when I worked at Sheffield Brewery and we did some swaps with various brewers yeah. there's one brewery that got into the trap of making something new all the time and so if they try to resell something to a landlord they'd be like oh what have you got that's new because they they, they yeah, didn't yeah. have that repeatability yeah. and, um, and I think if you set yourself up with that precedence as a, as a brewery, it can be very difficult to get off that conveyor yeah, belt. I, th- I think you're right, and I think you know we've got we've got beers now that we've been you know Jaipur's 18 this year. 18, 18, crazy, which is mad. So you know we've been brewing Jaipur 18 years. We've been brewing Lord Marple's 18 years. Mm. We've probably been brewing Brother Abbott 16 years. You know, uh, so all of these beers now have become mainstay sort of uh, beers that people love, sort of thing. So and then you got beers like Kipling, which you know we came around probably around about 2006 7 you know and comes and goes but he's always a real favorite of people who, who still love that nelson serving sort of hop yeah uh, and we were the first brewery in the uk to use that hop oh it's very difficult to get now thanks to punk ipa Hi. it's, uh, <laughs> it's um, there's certain beers that stick around come and go and even beers like chiron that we did 2010 11 went away a little bit because people were shine away from just a, a pale ale, American pale ale. But then all of a sudden, people seem to be coming back to these sort of beer styles that, you know, are, are really good. Yeah, definitely. So how, how would you say the brewing industry's changed since Thornbridge was founded and what impact has that had on the business? It's changed massively. Um, you know, it was very much, we were, we were driving the, um, uh, the demand. You know, we were making beers that nobody was asking for. You know, and I think over the years, probably the, the market's become far more mature and people are actually, you're almost trying to keep up with the consumer now um, and, and what they're wanting. So it, it's a huge difference. You know, there were, there were lots of different cascales all around sort of stuff, but there wasn't the, the smaller, we were, the, we were one of the smaller ones. Now there seems to be a lot more of the, of the sort of craft scene out there. Um, and it's been a fantastic journey. And, you know, just, just to see the UK grow into such a, a, a big force in, 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 in craft brewing has been fantastic. Yeah. So with, with the increasing popularity of craft beer in the UK in particular, how, how does Thornbridge stay competitive in such a crowded market? And how do you tackle that both domestically and in international markets? I think 
rather than use competitive, I think you use relevant. Right. And I think that's very, it probably leads into that's why you can remain competitive. The relevance that you've got to have, because again, I've always, you know, as I said, we're 18 years old. You know, in, in brewers' years, a bit like dog years, so people think we're about 100. <laughs> um, so it is, it's easy for them to think, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're old school. They're, they're, we're only 18 years old into this sort of game, you know. So, it, and I think some of, some of the being relevant comes from all the different beers that we're sort of doing. So, you know, we see, you know, uh, some breweries doing this style of beer, that style of beer, and, you know, we think, well, we'll, we'll have a go at that sort of thing as well. And so... It's doing a little bit of everything, taking a little bit of the American scene still. So again, how good they are on the barrel aged beers and stuff like that. Mm. Um, doing doing the core range, which which we always do, keeping the beers uh, consistent and of quality, and then dropping in and doing a, a different sort of beer here and there is always going to be what we do. You know, off the production line last week was a Pardus Tiramisu. You know, there's there's markets for these beers. It's not it's only a, a small one that we dip in and out of, but we try and keep relevant. Uh, and I think that keeps us probably competitive, um, but I think I think the quality and consistency is the thing that keeps us competitive. That people know if they're getting a beer from us, it'll be of good quality. Yeah. So do you, do you try and get out to places like America reasonably yeah. often? Yeah, we do very often. I mean, I've got a, an export manager who is um, out very often. He's you know he had a couple of years of not being able to go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and now he's he's, he's back traveling the world. And um, as I said, we're in 35 countries around the world. Um, America has changed. That was our first export market. But, you know, it's, it's just a wash with great beers yeah. anyway. Uh, and the difficulty of, of their system uh, and getting beers across there means no, no UK brewers are doing a lot there. And Europe's on our doorstep, you know, uh, and it's, it's easily accessible and we do sell a lot of beer around Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, how's Brexit affected Thornbridge and your export business then? In some ways... Not a lot because we always did X works, so it's it's affected us in a in negative way undoubtedly, uh, and has made us more expensive, which is never never great against yep. homegrown beers. But we've still carried on uh, pushing here, there, and everywhere. What we have found is, as I say, you know, we are more expensive now than we were were back then, so that will have slowed things down. But we've carried on uh, uh, pushing the boundaries in various uh, various uh, territories. The war in, uh, in in Ukraine has been a bigger obstacle at times right. because Russia was a, a, a probably one of our top three markets. So we, we decided, despite they still like the beer, we, we, we wouldn't supply Russia anymore with, with beer. So that's that's been a big drop off. Um, but everywhere else, we've we've seen some good 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 levels of sales actually, and we're still doing around about the same as we were probably ten years ago. So, so being able to hold your market shares not not by going that. Yeah. Well, while you mentioned Russia, oh, I was going to ask this question earlier. It's just the name popped into my head. Um, is St. Petersburg going to make a comeback ever? Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? <laughs> That's like my favourite style, yeah, yeah. and it's like I hardly ever see it. No, and obviously there are certain pressures at the moment <laughs> yeah. that means we're not going to be pushing it out. But it, it's interesting because we called it St. Petersburg after a, after a, a, a guy called John Morwood who lived at Thornbridge Hall, and he sold linens out of Manchester right. into the port of St. Petersburg. So when we were doing the names, that's where St. Petersburg came from. It will come back, I'm sure. Uh, but at the moment, we've uh, we've just decided to sort of maybe uh, let it take a back seat. Yeah. What other pressures have affected Thornbridge Brewery? Like, obviously, you alluded to the pandemic there a minute ago and the economic downturns and the war. What would you say are some of the key lessons you've learned as a business, particularly over these last three years? I think the um, 
if we, if we go back to the start of the pandemic, 50% of our business was on the on-trade, supplying pubs, bars, restaurants. Yeah. And overnight that went, uh, which was a real uh, worry for us. But we were, we were able to pivot quite quickly. Um, and we ended up uh, expanding during the pandemic, which is bizarre. Um, and because we were into with the supermarkets, we locked down there uh, and we, we, we canned and we bottled every single day of the week. We were at full capacity through the, right. th- through the pandemic. And our, we thought we had a pretty decent online presence. And then when the pandemic came and the orders came through, we realized we're actually not very good at doing this. <laughs> so, we, so, we, so we tried to get good at doing it. And, and we did. And um, we were 2,000% up throughout the pandemic on our, right. on our online sales. What we've managed to do is hold the majority of that sales still. So right. it's been a real focus for us over the last 18 months, working on the, um, on the online sort of sales and the beer club and things like that. And just realizing back then, we'd been able to move quickly, that actually, as much as we thought we were communicating with people online, we weren't. And it was a channel, it, was a, it became a TV channel almost, mm. that, you could, that you could speak to people, excite people, and get things to them. So we carried on doing that and that's been good. The biggest pressures we get now are energy. Right. Which is, uh, which we're seeing across the country with breweries closing down almost weekly, is a real uh, issue because there's been no government help. Um, and that, that, is, that is our biggest challenge at the moment, is, is the cost of, of energy. We are a high user of energy. The more beer we brew, the more energy we use. <laughs> yeah. So we're looking at various things, and that's um, nitrogen capture, it's more heat exchange sort of things, and, and probably becoming less reliant on, on buying energy, uh, as we have done in the past, to, to, to being a little bit more uh, uh, self-efficient on, yeah. on, on sort of stuff, really. But that's a challenge, and, and it's also... It's a cost because all of these things do do actually cost. Mm. But ultimately, it means we become more sustainable, which is important for us. Um, and these are all the goals we're trying to work towards now, uh, going forward. Yeah. And what about CO two recapture? Is that something you have? That's something already? now again, which we're, which we're in the process of doing, and, right. and the kit coming in because again, that was an incredible time when you know. You just couldn't get CO2. And that <laughs> that, wasn't was, it during like Euro 18? Was that what yeah, year that was? Yeah, actually, yeah. So yeah. I, re- I remember it and uh, mm. I was trying to get CO2. And it, yeah, and it's still, <laughs> and it's, again, it's, it's, so, it's so volatile mm. that actually, you know, we, we just decided we have to take back control on these sort of things. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what our big focus is over the last sort of year and going forward. Yeah. I mean, what, what would you say some of the biggest challenges other than the ones you, you've you've mentioned so far that breweries face at the moment in the UK and across Europe and where do you see it heading especially with there's so many announcements at least here in the UK that I'm aware of of breweries either closing or appointing administrators to try yeah. to save their businesses where do you see that heading and where they can implement change to save the business from entering into that time yeah. of administration and just closing yeah I mean it's a, it's a tough one is that the, the real so so again even with ourselves our energy our energy costs are maybe 300% up on what they were two years ago but outside of what we pay for gas and electricity glass price prices has doubled uh, aluminium prices mm. cardboard prices everything else which takes uh, energy levels uh, is, is just increasing in cost we can't pass on that we can, you know we can, you can only go so far you know we put a one price increase into pubs which is the highest one we've, 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 we've ever done but you know it was far below what others were doing um, but we're, we're almost stuck at that. The breweries are stuck at a level where they can't pass on the entire cost. You know, we, we're not, 
pint, you know, we're talking about six, seven, eight pound pints, but in real terms, they should be 10, 11, 12 pound pints. Yeah. But, you know, it's the difficult part is what you've got is you've got, you've got the public who also have no money in the pockets and you don't want to price people out from coming for a pub to a pub and have a drink. Um, but there is, a, there is a pressure from certainly the off trade when you see milk and butter and cheese at high levels and then you walk in through the door and there's slabs of lager and, and beer cheaper than they've ever been. Yeah. So the big boys, the big challenge for small brewers now is the big boys sat on big cash reserves who see this as a time where they can actually squeeze their market share higher and that's by selling beer cheaper, which, yeah. which almost blocks off the smaller producers yeah. trying to get price rising. Um, so that, I think that's the biggest challenge for, for a lot of these uh, breweries that are going. Do you envisage more breweries closing over the next few months? I do. I, I do. You know, as, as, as we spoke before, last year we saw Callum Island, which I don't think anybody saw coming. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this, you know, last week it was two different things, but brick and brew by numbers. And, you know, hopefully brew by numbers will, will, will come through this. It looks like they will do. But these challenges are not going away. That's, 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 the, that's the issue. So, and it's not even, you know, in, in, the, um, in your house, you can turn the heating off now because it's warm. You can't do that in a brewery because <laughs> we still need the energy to brew. And that's, that's going to be the real tough thing. And I do, I do worry that this is it's a, it's a challenge that's not going away for brewers. Yeah. I'd love to explore Thornbridge's involvement in saving Kennemine and Brewery and the brand. So can you talk us through... Yeah. How and why you rescued Pale Rider in particular? Yeah, I mean, what it was, it took us all by surprise, to be honest. Mm. Obviously, as I've alluded to earlier, Callum Island played a huge part in the development of Thornbridge, Dave Wicket uh, in particular. And I did see one quote where he said, if it wasn't for Callum Island, there wouldn't be Thornbridge. And now, if it wasn't for Thornbridge, it probably wouldn't be Callum Island. Mm. So it's, and we wanted to complete the circle. What it was, when the news came out, a good friend of mine, James O'Hara, who has a, a number of pubs in Sheffield and, um, uh, and was a co-founder of Tramlines, he said, we can't let this happen. And we said, well, no, we, we don't want to see this happen. So he and his brother and, and a couple of other people joined with myself and Jim at Thornbridge, and we, and we created a, a, a package to try and keep it out of, well, to bring it out of administration and keep the brand alive. Um, as I say, it, the brewery itself was unsavable. The kit wasn't capable of, of being what it was the building wasn't available right so that that may well be something else in years to come but that, that wasn't for sale so it's just a kit and the uh, and the brand and obviously we had no need for the kit uh, so we we wanted to try and preserve certainly pale rider just couldn't go you know just you know it's only sort of 17 years since it had won champion beer of britain yeah. and you know sheffield's lost too many breweries over the years so we wanted to do that and we unfortunately we did that so uh, immediately we sort of, um, we looked at sort of uh, just trying to save Pale Rider. We may do other things uh, to come. Uh, in fact, we are doing, uh, at uh, Kirkstall Brewery, doing a vintage right. um, a beer festival at the end of this month. And we've just brewed a version of Gold Label uh, for, uh, as a Callum brand sort of thing. Yeah. 9.9% cascade. Oh, should be quite interesting. Vintage beer festival, that sounds yeah, amazing. Yeah. No, it should be good. So, you know, we... This week actually sees the launch of the new website and the new branding, because what we did is we went back to the old branding yeah. to start with. Uh, but, but what we wanted to do with Kellum was try and make it a little bit more about what Kellum is now. Um, so, um, so I think some of, the, some of the branding that we've sort of done on the website will make that 
probably a little bit more more Callum Island than, than than what it was before. Yeah, it's such an interesting brand, Callum Island. Um, like, and, and mm. I mean, and the brewery as well. Like, I remember um, sometimes when we used to do swaps, and you'd have to, you know, go get cast back or whatever. And we were like, they were like ants in what, like yeah, a, yeah. in an ant hill in there. It was just like I, I could never quite work out how they made beer in that building. No. It's so small, so small, was it? You just. And when you think that the officers were above it as well, were they? I'd never went. Yeah, up, yeah, I, yeah. You know, I only ever went in the bottom bit where you could just yeah. see like the literally massive, had some, some some stairs up there and the officers. Uh, yeah, how they made how they made the beer in there uh, was was a real challenge. Yeah. Um, and when you think that you know back in the day that beer travelled around the around the country, mm. it's incredible, really. So yeah, so we sort of um, we took and there's been so many different versions of Pale Rider. I think I think the one that won Champion Beer of Britain was just a Willamette. Right, um, uh, hot beer, and, and it changed over the years. That they had many brewers over the years who, 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 who tinkered with things. So we, we sort of stripped it back to a, a recipe, probably from I think the mid 2000s, something like that, late two, uh, yeah, 2010 maybe. Uh, and we brewed it to that, and it's it's been great. We, we're bottling it for the first time actually on wow, Thursday. Amazing. Right. So that's going to be a, a, a bottle conditioned uh, live beer. Oh, amazing. It's, yeah, you know, I think Pale Rider and, and definitely Easy Rider yeah. um, was one of the first like real ales as they were called yeah, back yeah, then yeah. that I ever had. Yeah, you know, and it absolutely like blew my mind. Yes, incredible. That, that yeah. beer could taste like that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, hefty at five two. Yeah, you know, which is you know, when you look at what all the lagers back then, which were five two, whether it was Stella or whatever, they're down at four six now. Mm. Whereas ales have just stayed at that five two, you know, five nine for Jaipur and uh, and are still drunk. Uh, so, so the so the pair rider has gone really well for us actually. So we're very excited to be uh, to be bottling it this week. Yeah. So did you say that it's undergoing a bit of a rebrand? Yes. Uh, yeah. So so talk, talk me through the approach to that. But both with mm. I guess the Kellam Island brand and the Thornbridge brand because obviously you guys had a, a rebrand several years yeah, ago yeah. now with um, you know a really elegant, classy looking looks uh, Thornbridge beers, but they, they still look quite contemporary and modern. Yeah. Talk us through the process of rebranding both Thornbridge and, and, and now, obviously, because it'll be fresh in your mind, I would imagine, Kellam Island. Like how, yeah. how you approach that, how you work with your branding agency to get them to visually represent what it is you're trying to say. Yeah. Well, the easiest one to start with is Thornbridge because, actually, if you look up there, there's actually a picture board all the way through it. Right, yeah. So I'll talk you through it there. So Gosh, I remember those. On yeah. The, <laughs> the, first, so, so what we, the first thing we did, the first... If you go on to the bottle sort of stuff, so you've yep. got Lord Marples and Blackthorn there. We use an image of the hall and we use the word Derbyshire. Yep. Yep. Very quickly, we lost the word Derbyshire because what we didn't want to be seen as is just uh, a small uh, local brewery. Yep. We wanted to try and get our beers everywhere. <clears throat> so after that, by 2009, we moved down to here. So what I didn't want to do is, is particularly use a picture of the hall because we're not down at the hall. Yeah, yeah. So what I tried to do is take a little piece of Thornbridge and bring it into the into into that. So what we did is we took Flora, the statue. Yep. Uh, and we brought Flora down, and, and she was on the front of uh, of all of the branding from there. Yep. And then round about, I think it must have been about 2018, we then moved across to what we are now, which and we wanted to. There was a lot of noise in um, in, in small pack beers. You know, some some fantastically designed beer, which looks great on a table, but when you put it on a shelf among some other fantastic, you can't, there was nothing to pick out. So we wanted to almost create um, a modern classic, something that you know, something 
a Pilsner, a Kell look, a sort of mm. uh, Australia look, just something there that you said that that's there. We always knew with Jaipur, we got orange, yep, which is which is a bit of a standout. Uh, and then what we were doing, we, we had many, many different versions of what we were going to try and do. And then the design agency came up with one thing. And if you can see on that picture there, there's a, there's a hand-drawn thing there. And the pattern that is on all of our branding yeah. now is actually from a 15th century fireplace at Thornbridge Hall. Right, wow. So they, they took that, they redrew it, and then that, that is the, uh, the background pattern to all of the beers. Yeah. You can see the barrel-aged beers there as well. Yep. And they were—they're actually images taken from a uh, stained glass window in the hall by um, William Morris and Edward Byrne oh, Jones. Oh wow, wow, amazing! So, yeah. what we've always tried to do is, is, is keep going back to the hall in various ways. Very much in the in the early iterations, a picture of the hall, but then gradually, as we've been detached from the hall, just in uh, in smaller little bits along the way. Yeah, I guess with stuff like that, it's it's about. Um and I'm saying this with my branding hat on. Yeah, it's it's about implying something without actually stating it. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, so I, I do a lot of work with um, Lincoln Green Brewing, based in Nottingham. Okay. And th they have a lot of, um, you know, with them being in Nottingham, like yeah. Robin Hood type okay, references. Yeah, yeah. But they never want to be all like, hey, you know, our beers are Robin Hood themed yeah, yeah. or anything. So it's all like you have to be very subtle about you do, yeah. that approach. I mean, what we started off doing with. Um uh, with the beer names was I named every beer up there was something to do with Thornbridge so Lord Marples there was a chap called George Jobson Marples who lived at the hall and made it look like a stately home he wasn't he wasn't a stately home mm. he wasn't a lord but he asked all his staff to call him a lord um, but he was just a lawyer from Sheffield so and, and then Jaipur we ca I called it Jaipur after my business partner Jim got married in Jaipur right St Petersburg I've alluded to the story on that so all of the beers then had something to do with it but we've done that many beers that it's so we can't you know we've run out of references right <laughs> so, uh, so so, so the, the, the branding carries on and there are some slight tweaks we have we have an in-house uh, design in ours so some of the specials have got slightly different sort of looks as well right um, so that carries on evolving somewhat the Kellum one is very different so one of our partners in the, uh, in the saving of the Callum is uh, <clears throat> Pete Donoghue, who's got uh, uh, an agency called Peter and Paul, who were based in Callum Island. Right. So what we wanted to do there was try and create something that said Callum Island now. <clears throat> you know, when, da when Dave started the brewery uh, back in, whatever, 93 or whatever it was, Callum Island was a very, very different place. Mm. You know, oh, yes. Yeah. He, was, he was hugely different. What we wanted to do is try and represent what Callum Island is now. Uh, you know, th that, the beer, the brewery carries that brand. So what we've done there is quite a <clears throat> stripped-back version of it um, and just to try and give it it's a, a new lease of life. I'm sure many of the old stalwarts will hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, the idea with, with the Callum brand is to try and... You know, it, it, it nearly died. Not enough people have bought into it. So, you know, just to try and brush it up, get it going and, and give it a new lease of life into, a, into the next few years, really. So that's yeah. the idea behind that. You know, if, you, if, you stay, if we stayed with the old branding, it was just generally going down, down, down. Again, making it relevant, making it something, making it something to do with Kellam Island. Yeah. I, I, I always felt it was a bit of a funny brand, Kellam Island, because that, those early iterations, yeah. which were very, like, early noughties punklet. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then it moved to a more craft-type branding. Yeah. This is no disrespect to, no, no, to no. the designer because you know he, he does some fantastic illustrations. But I remember always looking at it being a bit like it just it it, it kind of doesn't feel right for that yeah. particular brewery. 
Um, so I'd be very interested to see how what you've done with it now and yeah. how you're t- taking that forward. Um, but it's, it is funny because when, whenever you ha- whenever anything changes like that, like a yeah. brand, you know, and, and particularly if people got used to it, and it happened with BrewDog, I remember when they moved yeah. to the new Shield thing, everyone was like, that looks so cheap and terrible. <laughs> yeah. No one batters an eyelid no, now. They're not um, but it's, maybe it's just people are just resistant naturally I to think, change. I think people generally are, and you know, but and also the people who are resistant are far noisier than the people yep. who just accept it. I mean, our biggest... Uh, noise ever was when we changed from 500 mil bottles to 330 mil. Yep. And that was if we'd gone in and killed somebody's grandmother. It was just incredible. The, the vitriol and hate. I, I felt my grandmother being killed. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, we'd got, there was an element of a certain type of people at the time saying, they're, they're children's bottles, 500, you know, you need to put them back into the pint bottles. I'm like, that's not a pint, it's half litre. You know, and it's, you know, it's very, very odd. And then gradually over time, those people went away. And actually, we just <laughs> relaunched our yeah, yes. bottles. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we, we have a range now, uh, and all bottle conditioned. So all of our 500 ml bottles are going to be bottle conditioned, and just that idea of of, of representing the cask as we do, in 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 a bottle conditioned uh, format, which is hopefully going to be pretty good. And we've got some listings in some of the big. Big, big multiples as well alongside what we sort of selling here and yeah. there. Yeah. Well, let, let's hope the brewing industry or, or beer nerds in particular can get over the, the packaging format yeah, exactly. dilemma. Because I, I remember with Emmanuel's, which you've got sat yeah. there in front of you, um, before I had the ability to can my beers, they were in 330ml bottles. Yeah. And they used to sell really well. But then I remember all of a sudden it just tailed off. Yeah. And I remember talking to Sean at Beer Central in Sheffield yeah. saying, like, what, what's the issue? And he said, well, respectfully, <laughs> he says, you're down the same gap that Thornbridge has fallen down yeah. in that the 330 mil beers aren't quote unquote craft enough yeah. for the craft beer consumer but they're too small for the more traditional <laughs> yeah, exactly. drinker yeah. whereas the rules don't seem to apply to the colonel no exactly yeah <laughs> I mean you know just whether that be a labelling rule or a bottle size yeah, or yeah. whatever it's just a different different thing for the colonel I think what you'll see I mean if if you look across to our shop there yep. the, the number of different bottles and, and sort of beers we have is, is huge yeah. and I think what you'll find you know I've been told there's, gonna, there's, there's, there's another player coming into the 500 mil who you probably wouldn't have expected as well in the coming sort of months really? so you know there is a there is a our idea was was to, to try and when there's so much interest in beer now than there was 15 18 years ago yeah <clears throat> just to let people try and understand about live beer you know really sort of thing you know mm. that actually yeah cans of this bottles are all fantastic but actually if you really are interested in beer cask beer has, has long been a uh, something that people underestimate in this in this country so the idea of a living beer uh, is, if you're interested in beer, you should be interested in living beer. And that's that's the reasoning behind the, the beers we've done and, and, and how we're going to go forward on that sort of thing. Yeah. And we're going to do the specials in there. So we've just recently we've done Horundo, which is our spring ale, uh, and Apricity, which is our ESB, and done those in there as well. So yeah. that's, that's uh, what we're doing. And talk about your collab with Budweiser Budvar. I mean, that's, yeah. that's huge. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's years in the making, to be honest. And then um, and then COVID got in the middle of it as well. Um and it was it was really nice actually to know that they they actually had an appreciation of us, which you know you just don't expect. We've, mm. we've sold beers in Czech for you know 15 years, <clears throat> but some of the some of the people working there knew about us, were interested in it. They had a thing that they wanted to showcase how good Czech beer is because it's a state-owned brewery. So to really champion Czech beer, and they wanted to work with with ourselves on it. They knew our reputation for lagers as well. 
Um, so gradually over over the last couple of years, it's it's come to fruition. We were over in Czech last year with them talking about it, and this is their first ever collaboration, wow. international collaboration. They've started collaborating with some small Czech breweries, yeah, yeah. But this is their first international collaboration, so um, it's been fantastic to be part of it. So again, that's that's a beer brewed to Budvar recipe with Budvar yeast, but all English ingredients after that. Yeah. So uh, so that promises to be fantastic. We launch tomorrow from here. Oh, I'm a day early. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can come back, you're fine. Uh, Wednesday in Leeds at the Banker's right. Cart and in Thursday in London. Uh, and then that beer becomes available in Cannes and Keg uh, across the country. Amazing. So that's been fantastic. And again, just having the, the head brewer over from um, from Budvar and just working with us on the, the way of actually a double decoction sort of brew and all this sort of stuff is yeah. different to what we've done. So it was a challenge, mm. bit, the biggest challenge of, of any collaborations we've ever done, but, but fantastic. So, um, yeah. yeah, really looking forward to it. I can't remember the head brewer's name. Rob. Um, oh, from there, Adam. Uh, oh, yeah, from Yeah, Rob, from yeah, Rob, yeah, Adam, yeah, yeah, I had Adam on the podcast. Yeah, did you? Um, yeah. I think it was during the pandemic because I, I knew the um, the then marketing manager who moved on. Okay. And um, he was talking about, not Adam, but the marketing manager was saying, oh, we should get you out to Czech Republic to come yeah. to the brewery. I was like, yes, please. And then he <laughs> yeah. moved to me time. It is fantastic. <laughs> we went over there in th- last October. And again, they do... They've got pressures in, in, in Czech as well that they now do a more hop-forward version of it as well right. uh, for a younger market. But actually, when you go down into the cellars, which are huge with, the, uh, with Adam, th- th- there are little tanks hidden away here and there which are fresh hop pale ales. And he said, don't tell sales and marketing about these. These are just for the brewers. <laughs> and you taste in beers, which are absolutely incredible. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a real uh, honour to be uh, to, to be the first ones on that. So yeah. very excited about it. Well, one other trend I'm interested to explore before we round up is alcohol-free beers. Yeah. So obviously you do zero five and this. We've done a, we've done a couple of we, we did a little by little, which was a stout. Yeah. Uh, zero five has, has been the one that stuck. It was big easy. It started out. Yes, with, I remember. Before big yeah. easy. Um, so again, our idea, you know, we don't have the technology to, to, to strip the alcohol out, so it was always brewing to 0.5. Again, one of the biggest challenges we've had. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a beer that's, that's stuck around. Uh, we always have it on tap here. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a big, it's a much, much bigger uh, sector now in the industry, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and there are some great versions of them. As well, you know, some 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 dedicated breweries just doing um, uh, low alcohol beers. Yeah, well, I tried some Mash Gang. Oh yeah, for the first time yeah, the other yeah. day, it was like a West Coast IPA. It was yeah. absolutely incredible. Was it? Like, yeah, I, yeah. I was absolutely blown away. Yeah, no, it's incredible. So yeah, we keep it as a permanent line now. Um, you know, there's always people saying, "What else could you do?" But but generally, you know. I know, I know, an alcohol-free Jaipur would be fantastic. But as you well know, as a brewer, it wouldn't actually be Jaipur. No, <laughs> would it? We could put all the same hops in, but no. But yeah, so I mean, that's that's a, that's a part that stays for us. The other ones, is, you know, we we brew we we brew tasty beers down at three four, three five, three six as well. Um, but certainly the 0.5s, I think they're here to stay, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for any brewers out there listening, especially those, I guess, who are well-established and have been training for a good number of years now, like what advice would you give them about growing a sustainable business that's going to last the test of time? And that's a huge question. It's a to huge question up. to round up. And if I knew that, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I see, what, I, what I do see is I see a lot of people doing such a fantastic job 
uh, at the moment. I think you know, even locally, I think we've got such a great selection of, of breweries. I think the hardest part is, is the pressures they're getting at the moment on energy, as we spoke about, because there's nothing they can really do about it. Because to change that and become less reliant on, um, on the sources of energy we're currently using, it's a capex thing, and you know, you know, breweries aren't awash with cash, just waiting to invest in little pieces of kit here and there. So that's difficult. I think the idea of making the best quality beer consistently has always been a, a mantra that you know a lot of people do. Is say, you know, some great, great breweries and great brands out in Sheffield and, and Derbyshire and the like. Um, and I think all we can hope for is, is is some help along the way, because without help, it's just going to be a real challenge. Yeah. You know, a real challenge. You know, it's you know nobody wants to be making people redundant. You know, so people want to keep people. People want to keep growing. You know, fortunately we're still in growth, but the pressures underneath that top line are huge for for all of us. So you know, until until we can get some help, it remains a challenge. And you know, I'd love to say next year at this time everything will be fine, but there's going to be some real challenges before next year. As we well know, there were people fall fall before then. Yeah. Um, so it is. It's. I, I think it's a, a far more worrying time uh, for the industry than, it, than 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 COVID brought. I think yeah. this is something. This is a real challenge because we are intensive users of energy, and you know we did get a little bit of help in COVID with furlough. There's nothing out there for anybody now, um, and you know the the whole. The whole idea that the government will be uh, turning a blind eye to us say, well, survival of the fittest. We shouldn't have a society that's a survival of the no. fittest. It shouldn't work like that. So, yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully we can get help, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not banking on it, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show. And um, maybe we should end talking about Peak Ender and then how people can get hold of your beers, because that, that feels yeah. a bit more uplifting way to <laughs> yeah. end. So you've got Peak Ender coming up. Yeah, so. which, which promises to be fantastic. We had it, we, it was our best ever uh, uh, last year, um, it's obviously been the first one since uh, pre-pandemic, and it went, and the sun shone for most of the time. So we pray for a dry three days. We've got some great beers lined up, some brilliant breweries, um, and some good entertainment for uh, for all the family. It's a, we 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 always say it's not a, it's not a beer festival; it's a festival of a beer. Yeah. In that you know, a lot of it's a real mixed bag of people who sort of come along to these sort of things. So you can you can treat it however you want. We've got some great food vendors there. Um, we've got some great drinks, which aren't just beer, you know, so uh, we're hoping to have some fun. We just released the glamping tickets, I think, last week, uh, and ticket sales are pretty good at the moment. So yep. um, uh, fingers crossed for dry weather. I'm hoping to get across just for a day session great, um, yeah. if I can. So, yeah. Bill, uh, so how, how can people find out more and visit the tap room? And I imagine, beers? I'm not very good at these sort of things, <laughs> but I imagine if you go to our website, <laughs> you can do a lot of follow the socials or whatever. But yeah, so, I mean, you know, on, on the website, thornbridgebrewery.co.uk, there's the web shop on there and generally all news about P. Kendra and everything like that. So, uh, yeah, go find it. Fantastic. Simon, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. <laughs>